You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Um, I'm Jenny Russell. Um, I'm a commentator. And today's session is focusing on our community values changing, which in some ways is a rather odd question because communities, of course, are changing radically all over Britain under the pressures of globalization and immigration and economic change. So in one sense, the answer is, well, obviously, yes. But the reason I think that Julia wanted us to address this question is that communities are at the heart of the way that the coalition hopes to change and transform Britain because the whole idea of its big society is that people are going to come together and somehow, in an inspired fashion, in a way that they were largely discouraged from doing under a Labour government, they're going to start... Louise may disagree with that. um, They're going to start coming together and um, building society in a way that was not really expected under a centralised, target-driven government before. At the heart of this idea of our community values changing is really the idea that communities are a good thing. But of course, as we all know from human history, that isn't necessarily so. They can be mean-minded, vengeful, suspicious and exclusive, as well as supportive, generous and resourceful. So the key question when we're starting to look at communities is, A, how do you create them? B, whose whose values are going to dominate and why? And how how does any community find the ability to talk to itself without being dominated by unrepresentative activists within it? And whether you're looking at um, the city or a, a racist community in the north or violent Islamists, and the question is always, if the wider population disapproves of any community's values, then can anything be done to put pressure on to change those communities' values And if so, how do you do that? Is it always a good thing if you have many different communities in a society who are going to have very different values? And should you be trying to impose some kind of homogeneity on them? Well, we've got a whole panel of people here who are expert in their different ways on aspects of this. We've got Fiona Rawls first from Business in the Community. And she practiced as a city lawyer before becoming director of education at Business in the Community last year. Anwar Akhtar spent a decade as a DJ before starting the Samosa, which is a digital media news and culture project, which is focusing particularly on the culture of identity and human rights, both here and in South Asia. Claire Fox is a professional controversialist, and she promises to be controversial this morning. And she's founder of the Institute of Ideas, which is the opposite of political correctness. It's a place where ideas can be debated without any anxieties or constraints about whether or not the ideas that are being put forward are acceptable. And lastly, Louise Casey became famous in Britain as the Asbo Tsar, and this is not a term that she uses in her biography today. (laughs) Um, She had a stellar career in the Home Office, heading the Neighbourhood Crime and Justice Unit, and now she's the first independent victims commissioner. And we're going to start off by asking Fiona to open the discussion. Thank you. Um, When I was thinking about this and thinking about to what extent our values changing, I I thought about what my own communities were, and I thought about what professional communities I know and have some understanding of. And the professional communities I've had exposure to are through my work as a trustee of a charity in the East End of London in Newham called Community Links, whom I've worked with for the last five years. Um, Through my work in the charitable sector over the last 15 years, and in particular the work I've done with businesses who are trying to build more corporately socially responsible programs. Um, And then most recently in the work that I've been doing, uh, trying to build bridges between businesses and some of the schools serving our most disadvantaged communities across the UK. And... It seemed to me that within those very different contexts, there were some common threads that were coming through, and in particular in response to the very, very challenging times in which we find ourselves. And the three values, I felt, were, which were of particular relevance in all of those contexts, whether the audience is a business audience a school audience, or a local community in one of the most deprived boroughs in Europe, were compassion when you think about who constitutes my society, who constitutes my community, 
And my sense from the conversations I've had with schools, with community players, with businesses, is a greater receptivity to bring within your community people who you may previously have perceived as your adversaries. So compassion is one of the values. Another value, which I think is increasingly dominant at this point in time, and I don't know whether this is expediency or just uh, pragmatism, is greater resourcefulness within those communities about the way in which they forge solutions. And maybe that plays into the big society agenda, I don't know. But what we're seeing certainly in Newham is local service users taking far greater ownership of the destinies of the services with which they're provided in the face of some very challenging funding decisions from within their local authority. And the final area in which um, I see a value coming to the fore across all of those audiences with increasing prominence, I've always seen it within the business community, but I see it within those other contexts, is collaboration and a more uh, creative response to collaboration. And collaboration which is rooted in listening to the communities and finding out exactly what it is they most urgently need and then thinking resourcefully across the groupings how the best solutions can be engineered to try and address those needs. So I see a growth in collaboration, uh, which I think is very encouraging. Well, that's quite extraordinary. It sounds like a conservative um, PR bit of manifesto, doesn't it? <laughs> is it actually working that well? Um, I think the communities who, for whom a lot of this work is relevant... Um, the conservative ideology is of little relevance. Um, I think what they are finding is that actually they may be articulating what lies at the heart of conservative ideology but not doing it wittingly at all. I think what they're thinking is how do we keep our youth club open, how do we ensure that we get enough pupils into the school to keep it up and running, uh, and that's not rooted in any one particular ideology, it's just pure pragmatism. Mm, but that's exactly what the Conservatives hoped people would do in response. Um, Anwar. Hi, thank you. Um, morning. Um, I've been totally distracted by the um, Tesco halal kosher counter um, <laughs> discourse. I'm going to have to come back to it. Um, okay, before um, halal kosher Tesco's, the first thought I had about whether community values are changing is I've really no idea, but I'm absolutely sure that like just about everything else on this planet and um, the world and the times we live in, they're globalising. And with that comes all the good, the bad, the difficult, the positive and the negatives about globalisation. And I'm going to talk about some of my own personal experiences and my family experiences. And um, I grew up in the British Pakistani community in Manchester. And um, a very close relative of my, well, my brother-in-law, um, in 2005, when the earthquake happened in Kashmir, um, which was horrendous in terms of the damage it created in uh, Mirpur, Kashmir, and also he's now in Pakistan at the moment working on flood relief, he, he and my sister single-handedly then brought together a group of people that went around, all the wholesalers and cash and carries and retailers of Manchester, and literally started organising aid convoys from the Manchester British Pakistani community, connected into um, the Bradford network of mosques, and to a kind of, it was quite humbling for a sort of secular liberal lefty type like me that was just watching it, you know, that kind of network in action. And um, they raised a lot of money, um, did a lot of good work, and they're heavily involved in charitable work. And um, even though he's made a lot of money personally, he lives a kind of sackcloth and ashes existence. And, um, donates most of his money to Pakistan for child welfare and orphanages. And I think the most interesting thing for him in the context of here today is um, he miserably fails um, David Cameron's multiculturalism, muscular liberal test abysmally. He's um, as homophobic as they come. And um, uh, his views on Israel-Palestine and the conflict there are such that he's not going to be getting invited to any um, interfaith community coexistence workshops or forums, I think it's fair to say. Um, my own personal experience, um, I was one of a group of people that set up a digital media project called the Samosa, um, partly because of the, the events of 
partly because a friend of mine had relocated, who, like me, is a British Pakistani, to um, get involved in human rights work in Lahore and Karachi and was heavily involved in citizen journalism, and partly to start trying to demystify Pakistan, which is one <coughs> of, I think, well, it's the sixth largest country on the planet in terms of population, and so little's known about it. And I spent two summers there, this summer and last summer. And one of the things that really struck me in relation to the British Pakistani community here is the communities here are from small towns and small villages, and they're essentially conservative because um, that's the nature of many small towns and villages, particularly in the Pakistani Punjab. And there's a million British Pakistanis. There's a lot of us. One in 55, 56 Brits has got Pakistani heritage. And I just thought it'd be interesting to get a series of conversations going between Pakistanis working in NGOs and human rights and welfare and development work, minority rights, both in Pakistan and in India. Because I just think that narrative isn't really looked at within Britain in specific detail. And just certain things smack you in the face when you're in Pakistan that aren't really analysed in Britain. One is, it's pretty clear there's three wars going on in Afghanistan, um, all of which are being played out in Pakistan. There's the war between India and Pakistan, which is played out in the communities here as well, which is essentially about the savagery of partition and a lack of reconciliation and a trust deficit on both sides. And both sides are fighting in Afghanistan through proxy forces. There is a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, again being played out in Britain, which is essentially the succession of Islam, Persian and Arab empires. And I think we may have backed the wrong horse on that one, even though I'm no particular fan of um, the lunatic Ahmadinejad. But the consequences of that are civil militias at each other's throats in Pakistan. And then there's a war that we're involved in. So that was something that the Samosa tries to just get out into public discourse. I'm also interested in the fact that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of British Pakistanis are in and out of Pakistan all the time, engaged in all sorts of welfare work, family visits, etc. Half my family are there. They're kind of relayed. They come back, the other half go. And there's a lack of engagement with DFID, the Foreign Office, the British Council, where the British Pakistani community is seen as something to avoid or a negative or not understood. And the Samosa has actually done quite well in just getting engagement with those agencies and getting things platformed. Um, just on the issue of multiculturalism, which is so contentious at the moment, my own view in terms of society in Britain is it's almost a meaningless description now because you know there's so many different interpretations. You can talk about the great positives of diversity, the history of Britain's relationship with India, with Pakistan, with the West Indies, you know, all the kind of pluses of having urban diverse societies. Or you can talk about the negatives, monoculture, <coughs> conflicts around arts and cultural practice, which occurs you know, occasionally. And, you know, and even that's irritating because then it's like you know, pros and cons of human beings. Are you a good human being? Are you a bad human being? My own take for what it's worth is Britain became a multicultural society for me sometime around 1740 when Robert Clive landed in India and started the cotton trade and built empire, the whole process of colonisation of India. 200 years later, my parents left the Punjab, came to work in Manchester, Cottonopolis, and now most of the textiles and factories in Manchester are owned by British Asians. So, you know, multiculturalism, it's like Islamicism, Zionism, alternative art, underground culture. Two people, three interpretations. So, um, I mean, just on the final thing about preachers of hate, and I'll wrap up. Um, it's a huge issue in the Muslim community. One, you've got Anjum Chowdhury, who's basically the Muslim equivalent of the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, this performing monkey. Who's, um, he's got about eight followers, um, but he's got a much larger fan club and... Um, following in um, Fleet Street and Channel 4 and ITN and the BBC. Um, so he's actually a preacher for the media rather than a preacher of anything to do with Islam. And what's amusing about him is it's only a matter of time till he gets his own reality show. <laughs> Peter Andre Jordan, yeah, Andrew Chowdhury, I can see that one. There's a more difficult argument about the East London Mosque, which is always in the media, which I'm personally very disturbed by, because unlike Regent's Park, um, it's a working-class mosque. It's not St John's Wood. It's not Primrose Hill. East London's always been the crucible of tough political narratives. And I think it's vital that we distinguish between three or four 
moronic, oafish, bigoted idiots shooting their mouths off in meeting rooms in a mosque and the entire congregation of that mosque. And the media is not doing that. It's demonising one of the largest Muslim communities in Britain. And I think that's profoundly worrying. And also, you know, what is a preacher of hate? You know, Mark, David Trimble, you know, one minute he's leading a mob up the Jumpree Road to attack a Catholic community. And the next minute he's winning the Nobel Prize for, you know, peacemaking and community cohesion. You know, we're going to have to go on a journey with Islamicists. Um, it's a journey I'm involved in, and I think it's fair to say um, they're not particularly fond of me. But you have to engage these people. Communities have to engage these people. You can't just ban those people from, you know, a narrative and a position in a debate, whether that's entry into Parliament or it's entry into the police and political discourse. Yeah. Andrew, thank you. I just want to ask you one question. You seem to be describing there, in the case of your uncle, someone who's very separate from British society, who's not interested in the values that get preached um, by governments in Britain, and whose focus is anti-Israel. His um, charity work is to do with Kashmir. His focus is to do with his people from another country. Is that something that you think is admirable, should be supported, or do you think he should be more integrated into Oh, the wider a, British society. No, he's as British as he comes. He spends most of his time on market stalls and cash and carries and retailers. But you're discussing all Manchester. his charitable work and so on, his focus of his engagement as being far yeah, away. Yeah, I mean, I, in fairness, he's also, you know, make your own judgment on the politics of this. He's also putting all his kids through private school here, etc., etc. So maybe, you know, I shouldn't have time to address that side of it. Now, the point I'm making is that the vast majority of the British Pakistani community. Um, are heavily engaged in relationships with Pakistan and that needs to be turned into a positive rather than this negative narrative prism of you know, a tiny handful of radicalised individuals that can cause great concern. Um, I should have talked a little bit about diasporas. Diasporas tend to often be conservative, certainly the Pakistani diaspora is, and I'm using him as an example of that, whilst the samosa is, and it's horrible as you get into judgmental decisions about urbanism and liberal communities and you know we tend to work my work is with Karachi, Lahore and Islamabad and my brother-in-law works with Bahaupur, Muldan, Maple. so I think there's a thing about people's backgrounds and people's kind of reference points there. Claire um, I don't think what I'm going to say is very controversial it's actually some issues that I've been uh, trying to get to grips with myself in considering the issue of um, values and communities so um, yesterday, when we started here, uh, we watched the film with um, Rabbi Julia Neuberger, and she asked us to consider what values we hold in common. And I think that's an important question, but the answers, it seems, are contentious and not that obvious. I remember in um, June in 2007, the previous go uh, government launched a new curriculum for 11 to 14-year-olds that said, quote, pupils will learn shared values and study national identity in the UK. <laughs> That led to an absolutely massive row. Uh, everybody sort of was going around in the education world saying, well, what constitutes shared values? Teachers complained that privileging one set of values over another might alienate or offend pupils from different cultural, ethnic or religious groups and even queried whether it was teachers' job at all to pass on intergenerationally different values. So you kind of got this massive round. We're, I think, all familiar that there's some sort of a crisis of values in society. When David Cameron made his speech in Munich on multiculturalism, I think it touched on this. Um, there was lots of things I disagreed with in it, but there was actually some things I definitely agreed with, and I disagree that multiculturalism means nothing. As a policy, it's something I had profound and have profound reservations with, even though I support living in a cosmopolitan society with no immigration controls. So um, if you can get your head around that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought, however, that the condemnation of official top-down multiculturalism uh, had its point because one thing that we know that's happened is that multiculturalism as a policy uh, has demanded unconditional affirmation, respect and recognition of all values regardless and has made a virtue of non-judgmentalism and moral relativism. And I do think that is a real serious problem um, that we want to address over this weekend. However, I think the solution to it, sometimes it seems easier to point the finger at values we don't like than actually establish which values we should embrace. 
Uh, you see this difficulty when local authorities recently attempted to sign up or integrate Muslim communities, part of the prevent um, thing that's be sort of been alluded to, the kind of social cohesion agenda. And it, the idea was, was that, you know, well, certain Muslim communities, certain people in the Muslim communities are alienated from British life. How can we make them sign up to British values? And what did they do? Well, local authorities rolled out a series of municipal training packages for mosque leaders and imams in health and safety, child protection and sustainability auditing. And madrasas and mosques were accused of not signing up to British values because of their failure to take out building insurance or conduct criminal um, uh, 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 checks on their, on their... and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, when you sort of see values reduced to a sort of set of rules or regulations... It's hardly a philosophical defence of the rule of law of Western civilization, and it's hardly very inspiring. But I also wanted to consider the High Court barring of Eunice and Owen John from fostering children last week. Um, when you think about the, what this couple had done, they're a couple in their 60s, and it seems to me that they're the kind of almost epitome of the kind of people who have tried to live their values. They'd fostered 15 children successfully throughout their lives. All the children said they were highly loving, they were kind of but they were barred from fostering. And it seemed here that we as a society said the problem with this couple was that they had the wrong values and they held them too tightly, right? Oh, you two have got Christian values and they're the wrong ones because uh, they wouldn't assure social services that they tell a child that a homosexual lifestyle is acceptable. Um, they were hardly launching um, homophobic pogroms throughout the world, but they were saying as Christians, we can't in all conscience do this. And I think it does throw up some of the issues. It seems to me then that um, uh, we are basically um, suggesting in both those instances, I think, of the uh, health and safety in the mosques and, and, and the, the johns, uh, the only way we can imagine that we can get people to sign up to values is through coercive use of law and regulations. And I think it's incredibly illiberal and draconian and something we should consider. Um, as problematic. I think when you see values established in a negative way through intolerance, we should be worried. In France, uh, from April, women wearing a burqa in public will face prison, um, and the, uh, this garment of dress has been proclaimed, quote, as an insult to the country's values. Right? Is that the kind of way we're going to go? Uh, we might not have a burqa ban yet, but we seem far more confident when showing zero tolerance to values we don't like than in fighting for values worth espousing. Just some quick thoughts then on communities. I think that there is similarly a bit of a crisis in communities. There's a panic about fragmentation, a society falling into parallel communities with no shared values um, as discussed, but also a broader sense of broken society, a picture of isolated, individuated, atomised people. This morning it was proclaimed, you know, what a terrible thing it is that we don't know our neighbours on the street that we live on. I'd just like to point out that I chose not to know my neighbours on the street that I live in. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um, but do we think that... that I, I do think, I do recognise that there's a climate of fear and mistrust that lurks around the edges of people living in communities. You only have to see a group of four or five youths in hoodies and you assume they're a gang up to no good. Uh, you only have to see a lost child wandering around your state and you're frightened to take them in in case somebody thinks you're about to molest them. Um, the neighbours play loud music, uh, have parties, you don't knock on the door and deal with it directly, you phone the noise abasement officer at the council. So I think that says some problems. But whatever the perceived problems of uh, communities, I think that, that's, oh, sorry, that's undoubtedly informed the big society agenda. And I actually agree with a lot of what Cameron and Hilton's original vision of this was. The bit about rolling back the state from hyper-regulating and micromanaging individual behaviour that undermines communities, it seems to me, is a good idea. Philip Johnson's new book, Bad Laws, charts the ever-prescriptive regulations that have targeted the most innocuous activities and acted as obstacles to ordinary communities. Uh, you only have to try and organise a summer fete, a sports day, or even a school debating competition, as I do, to become mad in, in red tape and health and safety rules and so on. I do think that the communities are caught in an ever-wider legislative net. So three cheers for the Freedom Bill, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. But what I do think, though, is, is that the big society actually, and this is my problem, is not about freeing people or communities in the big state at all. It seems to me to be more about getting enthusiastic participation um, of people in parastate structures, and it often involves a deeper extension of the state into everyday life and communities. And when um, Cameron said, when he launched the big society, we need a government that actually helps build up the big society, I immediately heard alarm bells. 
when the government starts building the big society, I think it undermines its very essence. The government's actually quite hyperactive. It hasn't rolled back at all. We've got the big society bank, the big society day, big society citizen service, and even, and I kid you not, a long-term plan for a big society university. Although I can't see many people paying £9,000 fees to enrol at that. But anyway, they haven't quite got a big society anthem or flag yet, but who knows. So I just want to say, kind of roll back, stop, and leave us alone to get on with it as communities. One thing I am sure about is that top-down community building is likely to be the death of real community spirit. Communities have to be self-organising, informal and spontaneous, and they're messy. So when we told we need a neighbourhood army of 5,000 full-time community organisers, quote, to ensure people power initiatives get off the ground, the antithesis of people power, I put it to you, um, I, I'm actually rather nervous about these official organisers who are charged with, listen to this, identifying local residents with a particular aptitude for taking part in big society projects. <laughs> They will then go on, these people, to receive, quote, training to become community organisers, motivating their neighbours to take part in community schemes. I dread the thought of these newly empowered state-sanctioned busybodies giving the authority to dragoon me into taking part in the approved activities and nagging me to attend the local neighbourhood watch scheme and sort of enforced community activism. Um, so can I just make a plea for opting out here? Uh, communities um, are something, I'm from North Wales, small community, was parochial in interfering narrow and moved away to live in London and never want to return apart from to this gig. Um, <laughs> Theresa May's uh, draconian uh, criminal behaviour orders, which, uh, with all due respect to Louise, are even worse than ASBOs, and I really, really hated them, um, are a good example of what can go horribly wrong. Theresa May <coughs> claimed that the um, behavior, criminal behaviour orders are designed to help communities work together to stop bad behaviour from escalating. Um, so rather than going and having a chat, she encourages neighbours to collaborate and keep records and compare notes on individuals in the community exhibiting antisocial behaviour. And that then, if five people complain to the local authority, the police are compelled to act. And you can just see the kind of responsible, state-trained local community activist knocking on the indoors, encouraging an outbreak of collective snitching. So I do think that there's a kind of model of trained community activists motivating their neighbours to take part that is not problem-free. Final one point is, is that... When I hear these schemes that promise to train up local community activists, I actually think that people don't have a clue about what goes on in the real world. Has anyone ever met a community activist or been in a community? Uh, community activists are often dedicated, dynamic and effective, yes, but eccentric, non-conformist, slightly mad and certainly very irreverent in real life. They're characters, peculiar, weird, good. But, you know, they don't fit in. So the problem is, if they are weeded out, or even worse, emasculated once they've been certified as fit to pass a training course, they'll just turn on into conformist clones, which seems completely counterproductive and risks suffocating not only communities, but actually individuality. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. Louise. Yes, it's always... Uh, I've been dreading the moment I had to follow Claire Fox on anything, <laughs> actually, but uh, today's the day. Um, I'm going to stick to the question, are community values changing, and just say yes, and then I'd like to move on to why I think the bankers should apologise or at least show some form of contrition. <laughs> uh, and I thought I'd spend my four minutes trying to persuade Robert that uh, it would be helpful if they at least looked like they cared, uh, which would be a starting point. Anyway, that, I couldn't, couldn't let the whole thing... Uh, I had to say that, and I didn't get my hand up in time. So, yes, our community values changing. Uh, yes, I don't accept that there's some massive crisis going on throughout our communities and in our country. I just don't accept it. I don't like this constant talking down of broken Britain. I think it's insulting to the people that live in what uh, the media and the politicians of all persuasions uh, talk about a broken Britain, and I think it just reinforces uh, a sense of hopelessness, uh, lack of aspiration, uh, and sometimes it borders on patronising in the way people talk about it. And I feel I can say that with some strength because I have spent the last 20 years in and around those housing estates and a lot more uh, earlier too. I wanted to say about community values and start off, I think we confuse individual values with community values. As individuals, and I will say what I think they are, I want kindness, I want intimacy, I want uh, a family, I want friendship. Uh, kindness is a big thing. Um, those sorts of things I feel. 
And I think quite often when policymakers, opinion formers, think tank people start talking, what they then do is confuse what is an individual need with what they then think a community needs, which is why Claire's absolutely right to want to live in a street where she may not want to know anybody and they may not want to know her. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. I think my neighbours feel the same, actually, about me from time to time. And I think that we confuse, therefore, the sense of what we're seeking from a community. Um, and actually, I don't know whether Matthew's in the back or not, but he put this, Matthew Taylor, a lot better than I did. What a community needs is that we need, no matter who they are, a sense that when strangers behave, they behave in a predictable way. And to explain that, I don't need to know the people living around me, but I need to know that they're not going to hurt me. I need to know that they're not going to actually the gang of five who actually a lot of the time are criminally behaving. They're not just... You know, this idea in middle-class Guardian Reader Britain that these gangs of youths are actually all lovely kids that have done absolutely nothing. Uh, studied by the Youth Justice Board showed every single young person on an ASBO in their count showed they accounted for at least 43 criminal offences and some of the many serious nature. So when people want to have a go about antisocial behaviour and crime, I think they need to get their facts right about why some of those orders are needed and work, and we can debate that till the cows come home, because I know that's not what this is about, but I have to say it. So we need some sense that when, in a community, we engage in that community, we walk out of our house, we go down to the shopping parade to buy the milk, that actually the people around us are going to behave in a predictable way. It's like getting in your car and not knowing anybody else on the M6, but hoping everybody else drives in the way you want them to drive, which is the way you drive. And that's, that's what makes sense here. It's not about politics, it's not about left and right, it's not about good and evil, it's about predictability, a sense of compassion and understanding that the people that we live with will broadly do things in a way which we would like, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. It's kind of as simple as that. Um, yes, community has changed, of course it has, and with that so will, uh, so will some of our values. Yes, I accept all of the stuff about diversity, but I come back to some of the things that I have faced as a, as a policy person and somebody who's tried to, you know, stop uh, people having to end up on the nation's streets, uh, sleeping there and dying young. It's about the breakdown of family. It's about uh, the increase in all sorts of things that are social and economic. Vast uh, change that is going on around us to do with the growth in an older population which just sits there and nobody seems to see that that is happening around us. That is happening on our housing estates. It is happening in the poorest areas in Britain and it is happening there and the effect of that is much greater than it is in Hampstead. Um, wanted to say a couple, of, and on that actually, I think if I look back on those last 10 years, 12 years that I worked primarily in the Home Office, I would say one of the things that I feel most upset about actually is this, this sense that crime actually is about small geographical areas that are poor. It is not about whole swathes of Britain. It is not about broken Britain in every area. It's about small areas that are geographically focused. They are often our estates, and they, they are becoming more difficult places for people to live, not, not better places for people to live. And I think the driving cause of that is called poverty, actually. Um, so that's another thing I want to say. Community, I, I live in a world where people constantly go back to yesteryear. I loved the Victorian uh, speech of the morning. I thought that was great, greatly interesting in so many different ways. I look back, people say to me, oh, Louise, you know, this word respect, and I don't mean the Galloway one, I mean the Blair one in 2005, the, the kind of sense of respect... And I look at them and think, actually, Dixon of Doc Greenworld, which is what a lot of the people talk about, called domestic battery a domestic that they didn't have to bother their little heads about. I don't look back on this previous golden era of respect and think everything was fine. It was about closed doors, hidden problems, lack of caring, people not standing up for themselves and not getting a decent public service off the police and off others. So I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't buy the sense of yesteryear being brilliant. And I don't, therefore, buy that the current year is also so terrible as people think it is. It's terrible in some areas. Um, I agree with some of the stuff Claire said as well, interestingly. Uh, never thought I would. Uh, community working against itself. I don't think the sense of community is always positive. I think violence being tolerated to such a degree in some of our communities 
And it is real gang violence, and it is violence. I was with uh, some people only the week before last of uh, mixed age groups, and every single one talked about, you know, being on a bus, somebody doing this, nobody standing up for it, Edmonton, you know, walking down the street, not knowing whether their brother was going to do this and that and the other. Violence, violence everywhere in this small but terrible situation. And children that are 16, 17, 18 years of age living with violence and tolerating it. That's what we need to focus on. And that's what we need to do something about. Um, Martin Bright is doing something about it. That's the sort of thing. I said two years ago when I came here, the recession worries me for one reason. Are we going to write off another generation of young people? Is that what this is about? I don't really care who's in government. I care about those young people being written off because of a recession. And I care even more about the community values in those estates where actually you arrive and you sit there with the police officer and the community activist and you watch this house, right? And they, I say, where's the biggest problem? They say, oh, well, Louise, it's that family. All right, let's go, let's go and have a little look then. I look at the house. I can tell you it's a problem just by looking at the house. And I'm judgmental about it. Yes, I look at it. I watch a kid come out of it, false faux pair of Ugg boots, pyjamas, overcoat on. What was she? 12, 13 years of age, wanders down the shop. Everybody sits there thinking this is normal. I go around housing estates, I see tiny little children with little pockle faces looking at me, and they're all, where are they? they're not in school. So yes, I'm draconian, I'll march them to the school. Yes, I'll serve a parenting order on the parent if I think they need to be made to actually get parenting help and parenting classes, if it improves them, so they don't end up with another generation of, of children growing up into young people in a hopeless situation. And yes, I get angry and passionate about it, and forgive me for that, I'm a little hungover. Uh, <laughs> so... so. That's that Julia Hobsbawm for you. She gets you in trouble all the time because uh, she was on the vodka, incidentally. Anyway, So, anyway, um, other thing, hope. Hope in our hearts. What do the public think is the best thing you can do to tackle crime? Better parenting, above and beyond police officers. They don't say always, which is what everybody thinks they're going to say, more police officers on the beat. Of course they want more police officers. What do they want more? Better parenting. They know it. They understand it. And they think that that's right. And then the other thing about these community activists, I, in my previous life, trained 4,000 individuals who are eccentric. I'm looking at uh, a chap at the back of the room who's exactly one of those people, Claire, and he may want to have... I didn't do James's, but he's here and he's part of something else. The thing about them, which is what everybody needs to remember here, is you can be adaptive if you want, but if the police don't answer the phone or come back to take a report or make a statement or if they don't actually catch anybody for any offence, or they don't tell you that it's worth picking up the phone to report crime, or actually the person that has beaten the living daylights out of somebody has faced a consequence, it means those community activists on the crime front have very little to engage with. If actually you can't get the hall open on a Friday night because the local authority won't let you do it anymore because there's cuts then your community activists can't necessarily do it on their own at the moment. I've trained 4,000 of those individuals. We called them community crime fighters, and they weren't paid. And they are, in my view, people that go above and beyond, but they can't do it on their own. This doesn't work if there isn't anything for those people to engage with in the public sector. And obviously, I always use crime examples. And I agree entirely with rolling back, incidentally. I think this endless health and safety gone mad stuff drives me insane. Um, Finally, I want to say one last thing, which is, are community values changing? Yes, they probably are. Do I think human and individual values are changing? No. I think we're the same as we've always been. And one of the reasons I think that is the other thing that I've discovered during my review, which is what I did in the Cabinet Office, is what are the public willing to do, and they probably don't need any of us to tell them, is to check on elderly and vulnerable neighbours. It was about 80% of the public said that's what they wanted to do. So I do think as human individuals... We are not living in a world that is broken. I don't believe that everybody thinks uh, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. I think the public are much more uh, human and kind to each other, but I think they need to live in a world, as I do, where I can predict what strangers will do so I can feel safe. And that's all I have to say.
I just ask you, Louise, to make a slightly political point? Um, you were talking there about people's um, reluctance to interfere when children are being beaten up, and that's something I certainly know about as the parent of teenagers. There were three or four years between the ages of 13 and 17 when they and their friends were continually um, attacked in public, and n no adult ever lifted a finger to stop it going on because <laughs> adults are so terrified of intervening in anything to do with children in case they then are accused of assault or sexual assault. And the same way you just talked about people wanting to check on the elderly and vulnerable neighbours, but a great many people feel that you can't do that kind of thing unless you've passed CRB checks and, you know, what are you doing as an individual knocking on someone's door? Are you actually trying to steal an old lady's handbag rather than asking whether she needs her shopping? And in the Blair years, do you think that people, um, act, that community values actually brought improved? Did all the Blair initiatives which you were responsible for bring about improvements? Oh, or, it's marvellous. All marvellous. <laughs> or, or did people become less um, eager to intervene and to help one another? What well, did all that money and all that effort achieve? Well, well on the, I can only account for, I mean, there are two answers to the question. The first is, if you're asking me about, for example, the respect programme that I was responsible for, I would say things like family intervention projects. This is anathema to some people here, but um, family intervention projects that basically you focus on the most uh, criminal and difficult families. You, if you need to, uh, essentially force them to take help from how they get their kids up in the morning to how they feed them. They're small numbers of families, uh, and the original family intervention approach under the Blair years was about, you know, the sort of 50 families in any small area and what could you do to essentially, if you need to, force them to take help. Interestingly, once the threat is made, quite often people just go, yep, that's it, I'll take it. And you don't need to use coercion at all, which is quite interesting in itself. And actually, the evidence, and we only got that going for 18 months because then uh, the Prime Minister changed and uh, 18 months later the programme came to an end and it changed uh, under Brown and... Um, Ed Ball, so, uh, and so I stopped? moved, it stopped, and it, it, well, it diversified into something that went much wider, and it, it basically said what you needed was a fan, I, I don't buy this type of approach, you see, I didn't when I did the homelessness job, and I don't, I think you target resources on either the most needy or the most challenging people, and that's a good use of public money. You don't need everybody to have their family intervened with. Actually, most people need to be left alone to get on with it. Most of us don't need parenting classes. We don't need, I thought Suzanne Moore hit the nail on the head, uh, chefs telling us you know, how to run an education system. Most of us just need to get on in our lives. This is not an issue that affects the whole of Britain, but on the housing estates that I wish to God somebody would let me get my hands on again, uh, you know, you, you, would, you would basically target essentially the worst or most challenging people, almost needy people, almost vulnerable people, don't mind which language you want to use, but we're talking about the same people, and you welly in there to try and essentially change their behaviour, and interestingly then the kids come off as at risk registers, uh, they are attending school, the mothers often uh, start working and uh, the dad that's in prison doesn't necessarily come back to the household to then beat the wife again. So, you know, those, in, even in 18 months, we proved that uh, they were successful. The diversification of them, I thought, was a mistake. On your other issue, I wasn't responsible for endless CRV checks, CCTV and all the rest of it. Um, I get, entirely get, the frustration. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure, I think sometimes... How can I put this? I think that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, I can't tell you whether I thought it got better or worse over those five years. I'm not a social commentator. I'm somebody that gets, it, gets stuck into problems that I think need sorting out. Thank you. Um, we've probably got time for two really quick questions because um, we overran earlier this morning and we're now catching up. Martin. I find myself agreeing with uh, Louise and uh, Claire uh, almost in the totality of what they've both said, uh, even the things where they uh, appear to be uh, contradicting each other, which is slightly confusing <laughs> to me. I'll have to go away and think about that. Um, and I'm sorry, Matthew, but uh, yeah, there won't be a spat between Claire and I this year um, because I, I found her presentation completely compelling. Um, but I wanted to ask a question to Anwar. Um, uh, I don't share your equanimity about uh, East London Mosque, uh, I, I think, and I don't share your equanimity about your uncle either, I have to say. Um, sorry, was it your brother-in-law? Sorry, uncle was mentioned on the panel, brother-in-law. Um, I, uh, I just wanted to ask you a, a specific question uh, about uh, the British Muslim community 
or perhaps specifically the, 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 the British Pakistani community. Um, why do you think it is that um, why do you think it is that your organization has become necessary? Why do you think it is that there has been this obsession, particularly with politicized um, uh, or politicized young Muslims, something that we should in essence be encouraging? Um, why have they become obsessed with issues such as Israel-Palestine rather than a greater understanding of their own legacy, uh, their own uh, families, okay. countries of origin? I, I, I'm just very curious to know why that has been. Okay, okay don't ask that for a moment because we're just going to take one yeah. more because we've got to wrap up. Um, is there another question? I think um, the question that I'd like maybe that you can discuss also along the same lines has just been said is that in the main people like to get on with each other and get on with their lives. However, it seems today that we're living more of community fear. Communities generally, or certainly ethnic communities, do not have enough dialogue with each other. They don't want any dialogue with each other. And maybe they shouldn't have any dialogue with each other. But within their own community, the vast majority want to get on with their lives, talk to their neighbours, etc., etc. But what I have a problem with, which I don't understand, which doesn't seem to have come out this morning, is why don't the communities themselves and those community leaders rip out the extremists and take them and separate them and put them apart and encourage within their communities of all forms that extremism isn't going to work, doesn't work, and we need to do something about it. And finally... The last bit of the thing of the food chain is community values must and always will and should start at home. That's where it comes from. Thank you very much. Sorry, what was your name? Harvey Smith. Harvey. Thanks, Harvey. Um, Shamba, do you want to just ask that quick question? Well, uh, well I was just going to... Uh, sorry. I was very interested in what you said about um, community becoming globalised. And I just want to take it actually away from your community, which comes under the microscope for lots of different reasons, um, and look at the broader diaspora of all the different South Asians, the East Europeans who come into our homes and quite clearly have very strong links with their own communities back home, and to ask you, how do you, A, find a theme amongst all of those differences, and B, how do you positivise it, as you've suggested? Anwar, oh, you've got about a minute. Okay. Um, I, mean, okay. I mean, on Martin's point, um, I mean, I have to be candid. I'm quite irritated that anyone can assume they know broadly what British Muslim or British Pakistani youth are thinking. You know, they don't. And the, the issues are very deep and complex, but we can't leave foreign policy out. There's, I'm, I'm always asked why Muslims rather than these tensions with the Sikh and Hindu communities. And Bluntly, we haven't bombed any Sikh or Hindu villages or cities for quite some time now. And um, dead Muslims are on the news all the time, um, be that Israel-Palestine, be that Kashmir, be that Chechnya, be that Bosnia, be it Pakistan. Um, the reason we can't rip the extremists out, Harvey, very bluntly, they're on our side. We fund them. We call them the House of Saud. Okay? Um, as fascist militias in Pakistan... Um, do not move without permission from their benefactors when they target liberal and human rights and women's rights activists. We have a deal with the House of Saud. We take their oil, we give them large volumes of cash. They return the cash, it goes to the arms industry, it goes to the Louis Vuitton shop, and it goes to fascist militias. We're really happy to take the first two. A bit uncomfortable with the latter, don't know quite what to do with it, but let's not get in the way of the luxury goods business, Saudi bling and the arms industry. Reverse the question to yourselves. We created this mess, not Muslim working-class youth. Thank you. <laughs> Half a minute's response to any of those issues, Fiona? I actually think it's very lazy to point the finger uh, elsewhere. I think it's very lazy to point the finger at foreign policy, as it happens, but I think it's very lazy to point the finger at either immigrants or at um, uh, uh, you know, different communities. Uh, the point I was trying to make was... Why We have to ask ourselves why it is that British Asian youth reared in this country, in Britain, have nothing to aspire to and are influenced by what are the most nihilistic, irrational, mad Muller ideas that want to be anti-humanist, right? 
What are we saying about what we've got? We haven't got anything to offer them, right? And even some of the things that then we offer them, that's why I was talking about the health and safety checks. Where's our big vision? And this discussion can get very petty-minded, right? It's exciting at least to see on the streets of Egypt and Tunisia, and even though it's violent in Libya, that the kind of values that people are talking about are things like free speech. I know that that's kind of a bit boring, but in this country we've sold it down the river. They're the kind of big enlightenment values that have inspired people. Democracy isn't voting with a tick box. It's got so much rich tradition. 2,000 years of it, never mind the con mon uh, sort of modern period. And we kind of just say, oh, never mind all that. What can we inspire local people with, right? And then the final thing, which I just have to say is, I, I think it's fine that we can say here that communities are dominated by fear and that you only wanted targeted intervention. But you also did say that the big issue is better parenting. And I think one of the tragic things that's happened, this is more in relation to communities, is that adults have lost confidence at passing on values to children. And it is the case that they then, if a parent hasn't even got the confidence to rear their children, then it's unlikely they're going to intervene with anyone else's children. But why have they lost confidence? And I do think that's been state-backed. I mean, the state tell you you're doing it wrong. You're feeding them the wrong food. You're, you're not allowed to discipline them. And God knows any of us would never make a foster parent. I would never pass any test, right? If I had to do a test for parenting, they'd rule me out. Because they're basically saying that, you know, all parents are doing these terrible things, poisoning their kids on junk food, smoking in their faces, behaving badly. And that's put on a, the equivalent of child abuse and neglect. So it's, yes, okay, so that's what's gone Thank wrong, you. and you are a bit responsible, a bit. Oh, no. I, feel, I feel very, very clear that I don't think that what you're saying is completely in disagreement with what I believe as well, actually, Claire. So my own view is you are not saying that every parent needs the A to Z of how to do it, but King's College, who we worked with during the process of the parenting work we did, showed a very, very clear thing. Um, where they uh, were working with families whose kids had been referred to them either through the police route or through community mental health route where their behaviour was off the barometer, you know, uh, taking a knife to the mum, that type of thing. A 12-week intensive parenting course run by King's College uh, Hospital uh, got them a level of confidence and skill and bonding that meant a, all of the behaviour dropped by at least 50%, and they went back a year later to see whether actually the parents had sustained it without any state intervention at all, no resettlement workers, non, no ongoing professional support, and 12 months later, the parents were still in control. And I think in small geographical areas of this country, we have families and parents that aren't coping, and they are creating most of the problems that we then live with, and we should go back to that type of approach that we set up under the RESPECT programme and was stopped. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to the panel.